Well, we are in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to the famous interaction between Jesus and a lawyer, and this lawyer was most likely a Pharisee as well, and the lawyer's question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus' answer uh, is multifaceted, but it certainly includes his, his famous story of the Good Samaritan. So we are in Luke chapter 10. We're going to pick it up with verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God, <clears throat> excuse me, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Then he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to our God as we meditate on his word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word from your son, Jesus, who is the word made flesh. We pray that in this time through your spirit, we might have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would come to embrace the gift we have been given in your son that we would love him in response to the love you have shown to us through him and we pray all of these things in his name again in the power of the spirit amen well, last week we left off by considering both what jesus meant in the previous passage when he said i saw satan fall like lightning which was a reference to satan's initial defeat that is still ongoing, even as he was thrown out of heaven as the accuser of God's people. And what he meant, again, Jesus, when he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. When Jesus used that phrase, hidden these things, he was referring to all the events of his public ministry, his preaching and his healing, uh, the casting out of demons, as well as what his disciples had done, which were all those things, then they had done them in his name. So by using the term hidden, Jesus has in mind what the prophet Isaiah had in mind. Seeing, they did not see, and hearing, they did not hear. So the wise and understanding of Israel, really the shepherds of Israel, people like the Pharisees, or like this lawyer, or scribes, or the Sadducees, they did not understand what they were witnessing right in front of them with Jesus. And in turn, they did not put their faith in him. And this was 
As Jesus himself says, God's gracious will. He intended this. He, he hid this from them, even as it was right in front of them. And it's gracious because, like with the prophet Isaiah, it's judgment. It's judgment on the shepherds of Israel who, by and large, were leading the people badly. But it's also part of the great reversal that the ones who did understand and believe, they have been given eyes to see and ears to hear what they are witnessing, are the little children, so to speak. That is, the ones who were supposed to be led by the shepherds. The shepherd knows his sheep, and his sheep know their shepherd's voice. This is what Jesus says often in the Gospel of John. Well, our passage today, it does end somewhat with a cliffhanger. So we don't know how the lawyer actually responded to Jesus's, you go and do likewise. Even as I think this is an example of, of what Luke offers, uh, of what it looked like for one of the wise and understanding of Israel to hear Jesus, to interact Jesus, to see Jesus, but not understand him, even as it invites the children to read this story, to hear this account, and to find life in him. Well, verse 25 tells us that a lawyer who was, <clears throat> excuse me, most likely a member and leader among the Pharisees, the Pharisees as a group were often led by lawyers and scribes, that he stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now, the last time we read about Jesus being tested, it was in Luke chapter 4, and it was Satan, or literally the Satan, the accuser of God's people, doing it. And that tested, testing ended with Jesus quoting Deuteronomy 6 to Satan. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, Deuteronomy 6 itself uh, and that, that line from there, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, was itself a warning to the children of the generation that had come out of Egypt in the Exodus. It was a reminder about what had happened in Exodus 17, really with their parents, when Israel, newly in the wilderness, grumbled against God because of the lack of, of uh, potable water, and they called into question whether God was truly among them or not. So to test God, at the very least, in Exodus 17, is to call into question whether he is with his people and has their best interest at heart, like what Satan does in Genesis 3. It's to question whether God is really good or not. So case in point, the people in Exodus 17, they actually accuse God. They said, why did you bring us, our children and our livestock, out of Egypt just to kill us with thirst? Now, that's a moral statement. That's a moral statement. They were calling into question God's goodness and faithfulness and the reliability of his promises. Well, here in our passage, the Pharisee, by testing Jesus, he's essentially doing the same thing. The Pharisee asked, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a moment's reflection shows that this is a nonsensical question because there's nothing a person does to inherit anything. So people are, are born or adopted into an inheritance, for better or worse, and in turn, that inheritance is given to them. It's given to them. Not that my sons have much material wealth to inherit from me, which is how 
Most Americans think about inheritance that is strictly almost, almost entirely strictly in terms of material uh, issues. Even so, by virtue of being born into my family, they have been given the luxury of being taught Christ by two parents who believe what they claim to believe, who love them unconditionally and sacrificially and have received the benefits that come from having two parents who are highly educated and are committed to their son's growth and into maturity as Christian men. They did not ask for this, and they did nothing to receive these gifts. They were born. That's it. And even then, that fact that they were born was not their choice. They were not worthy of the gifts we have given them. They did not earn them, and they cannot possibly pay back the time money and sacrifice and effort put into raising them. Even so, all these things were freely given to them out of love, and we gave them without hesitation. And aside from science fair projects, we were and we are happy to give our lives to them. And that's from a sinful set of parents. How much more so God to his people? So for a Pharisee to ask what he must do to inherit eternal life, especially as he is putting the question to the Son of God, is akin to my kids asking what chores they can do to earn my love. The answer, as the law itself puts it, is you're already loved. Now go clean your room. That's how that basically works. Now, that said... Using that illustration, I'm in danger of making the Pharisees' question seem far less worse than it actually is. By asking this question, the Pharisee, like Israel in Exodus 17, is calling into question God's grace and his kindness. And in turn, his question assumes that God is not good and is not good to his word. Well, Jesus, as he so often does, asks a question in response. <clears throat> he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? This is a perfect question for a lawyer, and it allows the man to demonstrate if he actually understands the law or not. The Pharisee says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That's a great answer. It's a great answer and is pretty much how Jesus himself summarizes the law. In fact, we've already had that in this worship service today. Jesus then says, you have answered correctly, do this and live. Now at first read, this appears as though Jesus is actually confirming what we might call a works righteousness mentality. That is, if you keep the law perfectly, you will actually inherit eternal life. And that's what Jesus actually says. He says, do this and live. Just as Jesus answered Satan with Deuteronomy 6, right? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So we can also find the summary of the law as the Pharisee quoted in Deuteronomy 6 as well. And if read out of context, it's easy to read Deuteronomy 6 as saying, keep the law perfectly and God will give you life. And lots of Christians mistakenly do this. But if you start with Deuteronomy 5, before Moses gives the Ten Commandments, and it also works this way with Exodus 19 and 20 with their parents, with the first giving of the law on Sinai a generation earlier, 
Moses says these key words before he, he reiterates the Ten Commandments. He says, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, that is on Mount Sinai. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, that is God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Stop right there. So before God ever gave the law and commanded faithfulness and obedience, he had saved Israel from sin and death and entered into relationship with his people. That's what a covenant is. So he loved them, he chose them, he saved them, and then he said, would you like to get married? To which they said, yes, please, that sounds nice. Deuteronomy 5 and 6 then are like a repeat of Exodus 19 and 20 for the generation, this generation that was getting ready to take the promised land. Now, human marriage works pretty much like this too. A couple makes a pledge of love and faithfulness and commits to the permanent relationship together. That's the wedding ceremony, right? So that's Exodus 19 and 20, that's Deuteronomy 5, 6. But that relationship is maintained over the years. It's, it's held in place by faithful obedience to the vows. That's what actually makes the marriage. That's why I tell every couple in premarital counseling that it is not their emotions. It is not their emotions that will keep them faithful to one another. Emotions that can go up and down and change multiple times in a day, if not in an hour. It is their obedience to the vows they have made out of the commitment of love. It's why the cliche, love is an action, not a feeling, is actually right. It's actually right. To love is to choose the good of another, sometimes at great cost to yourself, no matter whether you feel like it or not. Well, so it is in Deuteronomy 6. To love God with everything you've got is the response. It's the response to God's wholeheartedly loving us first. God is completely faithful and obedient to his wedding vows. He does what he says he will do. For Jesus to say, okay, do this and live, is like a pastor telling the couple at the wedding, be faithful and your marriage will last. What Deuteronomy assumes is that those who are in covenant with God will keep the law out of love for him and in turn will be shaped by him and grow in him and his word. And would the people in Deuteronomy, however, keep the, that law perfectly? Well, of course not. That's why God provided the sacrificial system. God provided a means of atonement for his people's sin and unfaithfulness that looked all the way forward to the Christ. Even so, the expectation of the relationship was that God's people would pursue him with their whole heart, just as the expectation of everyone who gets married is that their spouse will not be halfway or wishy-washy in their commitment to them. It's why Christians wisely marry in the Lord. Now, in verse 29, Luke tells us that the Pharisee, desiring to justify himself, said, and who is my neighbor? 
Again, the reason he wants to justify himself is because he does not think God has his best interest at heart. Otherwise, he would know this is completely foolish. We did a whole sermon series on this in the fall of 2022 in which we looked at all the ways modern Christians attempt to build an identity and a life apart from God. You remember it, all those questions. I am what I own. I am what I do. I am my best trophy, and, and so on. And all of those things, they're really just versions of self-justification. They're all just different varieties of the one self-justification. So, for example, if you think owning an expensive vehicle or having an elite wardrobe or having won the genetic lottery in your youth gives you more value or worth than someone else, at root, you believe that because you do not believe that God is your inheritance and has not given you everything you could ever need, in particular himself. So you go looking for value in cars and clothes or your face or, or whatever it may be. So when the one who made the heavens and the earth delights in you and has set you apart for himself, you know, how can a car or a clothing brand or a trophy or the fleetingness of youth compared to that. So this Pharisee has already rejected the notion that he belongs to God, despite being an expert in the law. That's the irony. And this is borne out in that question, who is my neighbor? And as we talked about in that sermon series from the fall of 22, more often than not, when we reject God's love, we will go looking for affirmation or to measure ourselves against other people. My car is better than yours. So by definition, I am better than you. Unlike us, the Jews of Jesus' day, however, they did not use material possessions to establish, establish social standing because they just didn't have like what we have. More often than not, they used the pursuit of Judaism itself and Jewish traditions to establish social standing. So this is exactly what Paul tried to do, and, and he says as much. So the Pharisee then was trying to use the law in order to gain social standing among his peers, but he wanted to narrow the law just enough for it to be palatable for him. And he, and he wanted this teacher, Jesus, to affirm him in his view. And in response, Jesus, as he so often does, doesn't actually answer the question, he tells a story. He says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So the man in the story, he's just a nondescript Jewish man. He's just a guy. He's robbed. He's stripped. He's left for dead. And the first person to come across the man was a priest. Priests were members of the upper class in Jewish society. So like Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, uh, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, they served in the holy place of the temple, and only they were allowed to be in that place. Now, did the priest know the man was alive? Well, maybe, maybe not. But if the man was dead, for the priest to get involved would mean he would become ritually unclean, and he would be unable to serve in the temple for a time. Even so, his ritual impurity would last in the grand scheme of things, for a very short time and could be easily dealt with through the sacrificial system. 
In other words, this was, well, it was an inconvenience for him. Had it been another priest or someone of note dying on the side of the road, things might have been different, and he'd be willing to risk that ritual impurity. So really, the issue with the priest was that he, like the lawyer testing Jesus, limited who he considered his neighbor. And without a thought, he passed by the man. Jesus then says a Levite saw the man and passed him by too. Now, a Levite was on a slightly lower social rung than the priest, but he still got to serve in the temple too, though he didn't get to go into the holy place. That means he was on a higher rung than the lawyer and the Pharisee, but still lower than the priest. But he too refused to see this man as his neighbor and in turn to love him as himself. And I think it's telling that Jesus uses two men associated with the temple as examples of people who passed the man by. The temple, of course, was where atonement through sacrifice happened. It's the place where God communed with his people. So these are people who supposedly love God with everything they've got. But by his narrowing of the meaning of the word neighbor, the expert in the law, well, he was doing the same thing as these men who supposedly love God. They were refusing to love their neighbor as themselves. And it's really the third man, the Samaritan, that makes Jesus' story so shocking. Samaritans uh, descended from the conquered peoples that the Assyrians had replaced the northern tribes of Israel with after the Assyrians conquered Israel and exiled them to Assyria. So this was roughly, just if you're thinking through the Bible, about 100 years after the book of Jonah. So you can find the events I'm talking to in 2 Kings 17 if you want to go read it. But essentially... When the Assyrians would conquer a people, they would cart those people off to Assyria and then replace them in whatever land they had just conquered with other people they had conquered. But in the case of Israel, things did not go as they typically went. God sent lions among these, these new arrivals because they did not know the Lord, and it was still the promised land after all. So this was told to the king of Assyria who in response he sent an Israelite priest to teach the people how to worship the God of Israel. And the priest goes to Bethel. He establishes worship. And as 2 Kings 17 says, the people feared the Lord and worshipped him, even as they continued to worship other gods too. So in that sense, outside of ethnicity, they were really no different than the Israelites who had been there before them. Even so, God made a covenant this is so crazy. God made a covenant with these Gentiles using the same language from Deuteronomy 5. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt with great power, essentially saying, you who were not my people are now my people. I am in covenant with you just as I was with Israel before you. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day absolutely rejected that. They rejected the Samaritans as part of God's people. And you get that impression in John chapter 4 with Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. I'm sure you know that story. That happened in Samaria. And she says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So the tension here, it's clearly there is a racial component to it in the sense of like Jew versus Gentile. But far more so, it was religious, as in, 
Who actually has the true God? So in the first two examples, we have a priest and a Levite, so two men directly associated with the temple in Jerusalem with high status. We might even say they were justified in the eyes of their people, and they supposedly knew the true God. And with the Samaritan, we have a man who had no status among Jews and was seen as a false worshiper. And the defining difference between the three men is that when the Samaritan saw the man, he had compassion for him. Now, to have compassion is to have a deep awareness or sympathy for another person's suffering. It is not merely uh, an intellectual awareness of it. I mean, clearly the priest and the Levite could recognize that the man was, was badly injured. No, it's to be stirred deep in the center of your being for that person. You could feel their pain such that you have to act. It's like being in a, a crowded place and you can see every mom when a kid starts to cry. They turn and look. The dads, they don't know. But the moms, they, why? Because they feel compassion. They feel stirred. Do I need to act? Does that child need me? In the case of the Samaritan, he immediately moved to deal with the man's wounds. And I think the reference here as you go through it, to oil and wine are not merely medicinal, though there's something to that, but have associations with the sacrificial system, like you see with the consecration of the priests that we've talked about before, or the Feast of first fruits, which subtly points beyond the physical wounds here to the temple itself. As in, this Samaritan is more tied to God than the priest and the Levite in the temple. He then puts the man on his own animal, implying that the Samaritan would go on foot and then put him up in an inn and provide for all his needs. So the language indicates that the Samaritan paid for him, took care of him, and then was going to leave. He was going to leave the man in the innkeeper's care for a time, but he would return uh, to settle all the man's debt. So the Samaritan recognizes that this man now has nothing. Remember, he's been robbed. Not like he had a bank. He's been robbed, clothing, everything he's got, gone. And he steps in and provides everything he needs. Now, there is absolutely no benefit, no benefit to the Samaritan doing this for himself, nothing. And there is certainly no financial gain or social status to be had. No, the only one who gains anything in this story is the half-dead man. In fact, the Samaritan, beyond the fi his financial risk involved, he's actually risking his own life. You know, even in our own day, there is story after story of people. I'm sure you've seen them. I'm sure you've seen the videos of people uh, or employees trying to protect stores from thieves or vandals. We, we even call these sorts of people good Samaritans, right? Only to be fired by their employers, or sometimes even arrested by police for doing the right thing. Well, this Samaritan faced that same kind of risk too. Well, Jesus doesn't answer the Pharisee's question, who is my neighbor? Instead, he asks, of the three men, who was actually a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So whereas the Pharisee was trying to narrow the law and thus limit who he had to love, Jesus actually pointed him to the fullness of the Lord, 
Love the Lord your God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. So the right question is not, who is my neighbor? It's, do I love my neighbor as myself? In response, the Pharisee deftly replies, the one, notice he doesn't say Samaritan, the one who showed him mercy. The Pharisee recognizes, unlike the priest and the Levite, that compassion rightly ordered, because compassion can be wrongly ordered, by the way, compassion rightly ordered moves towards mercy, no matter the person. And to show mercy, as Micah 6.8 says, is to walk in the way of the Lord and to have a heart like his. And so Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So it's worth asking, why does Jesus deflect the Pharisee's question and instead redirect his attention to what a good neighbor actually does and what a good neighbor actually is? Now, on the one hand, it's clear he's undermining the Pharisee's narrowing of the law, and in turn, he's undermining his attempts at self-justification. And good, rightly so. As Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, it's easy to refrain from murdering someone. I feel certain I can go my life without murder, committing murder. It's another thing altogether to refrain from hating or despising people you dislike or disagree with. Those are issues of the heart. Those are issues of the heart, and we are to love the Lord our God with our whole heart. In this sense, Jesus' response, it actually reveals the bankruptcy of the Pharisees' question. If this is what the law requires, which it does, okay, go justify yourself by doing this wholeheartedly. Be like God. Be like God, not like the priest and the Levite. But as the Pharisees surely knew, you, you can't make yourself feel compassion for people you dislike or find distasteful or, or hate. It's why, it's why he can't bring himself to even name the Samaritan. This is why this passage, instead of being a comfort to God's people, as it was actually intended to be, has so often been presented as a means for confirming our pharisaical impulses. Real Christians, real Christians love sacrificially. Real Christians will love radically and will cross ethnic, cultural, economic, and political lines. And the realest of real Christians, they will deny this capitalistic digital economy, sell their possessions, and take a vow of poverty. So you had better flip that switch today. Better do it now. Start loving your enemies in radically difficult and countercultural ways, or else can you really call yourself a Christian? And of course, there is some truth to this. To love God and to love neighbor is to love like Samaritan. And I would suggest that that begins in the home. And if you can't do it in the home, you certainly won't be able to do it to a perfect stranger. And we are called to live sacrificially. But on the other hand, while Jesus' response to the Pharisee is a refutation of his attempts at self-justification, he's actually presenting the gospel to him. So it's worth asking, have you ever met anyone who actually, like the Samaritan in this story, did this kind of work consistently 
across their life? Now, of course, I've known a lot of Christians who did incredibly sacrificial things at great cost to themselves, and at least in part did things akin to this, at least once or twice. But a lifetime of living like this? You know, like with the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the wicked tenants, the chief character of this story that Jesus is telling is Jesus. This story is about Jesus. Jesus is the good Samaritan. In turn, the half-dead man on the side of the road is the Pharisee, who himself, despite all appearances, like the priest and the Levite, Levite is actually spiritually dead. And over and over again in Scripture, it is God, not his people, but God who is described as full of compassion and steadfast loving kindness. As an expert in the law, the Pharisee surely knew that Israel had done nothing worthy of life when God redeemed her from Egypt. And even then, she immediately rebelled against him. Even so, God continued to show compassion and mercy to Israel, binding her wounds, atoning for her sin, providing for all her needs, and promising her life and communion with him in his house. He did this not because she was righteous and faithful, but precisely because she was not. I mean, just consider Psalm 103. There's so many examples of this. Just walk with me briefly through Psalm 103. It says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. We tend to think these days of the oppressed as being totally innocent, guilt-free, not in the Bible. The oppressed in the Bible very well may be, have sinned against, but they may be there because of their sin. And it is God who works these things. He is the one who justifies and redeems. It says, He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. So it is God who revealed Himself to Israel and promised them life. It goes on, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's just bound up with the sinner of who He is. This is His character. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So even as God calls out sin, as Jesus does with this Pharisee, he offers mercy to those who want it. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, think about that image. How far is the east from the west? So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So it's just like how in the parable of the prodigal son, the father had compassion on his sinful, rebellious son who had squandered his inheritance, but knowing his father to be a good man, returned to him. And in response, the father ran to embrace his son. He robed him in glory. He put a ring on his finger and he threw a feast for him. So this Pharisee rose to put the son of God to the test. So despite his, his Jewish religion and tradition in his heart of hearts, unlike the prodigal son, he did not believe that God was good. 
He did not believe that God was good or would show compassion to him, and thus he believed that he needed to do something to inherit eternal life instead of receiving it freely from God. And in response, Jesus tackles that lack of faith head on, revealing him to be spiritually bankrupt and offers himself as the one full of compassion, the one who would atone for him, heal his wounds, and would return again to pay his debt. Now, Luke does not tell us what happened with the Pharisee. Did he turn? Did he repent? Did he, did he turn away? Even so, this is an example of how the gospel was hidden from the wise and understanding of Israel. People like priests and Levites and lawyers, even as it was revealed to the children, you know, men like the disciples and many of the crowds who followed Jesus. And to be sure, the Christian life, as we read it, is a movement in learning to love more and more as God loves. And this is something that God works in you over time through his Son and the power of the Spirit. But the love of neighbor is not the starting point. Radical love is not the starting point for our life. It's what comes in response to God's love. So you can no more decide today to be a good Samaritan than you can decide to be fluent in Bengali. You don't know that's a language in India. No, the Christian life begins with God's compassion and mercy. It begins with Christ's offer of life, his offer of atonement, his offer to bind your wounds and pay your debts, and his promise to return again to make all things new. These things are all gifts, all of them. Like the Good Samaritan, he freely gives them, and like all inheritances, there is nothing you can do to earn it. He just gives it away. Well, let's go to our God who gives these wonderful things away in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. You have given us all good things. Lord, we thank you for this kindness. And I pray for me and as I pray for everyone else because I think we're all struggling with this to some degree that I might let go of trying to justify myself and believe you that you are good and have all the best intentions for my life at heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.